I was catering one night at the Grammys. I was pouring champagne at the Grammys, and Aretha Franklin started to walk in the room, and then Sarah McLachlan walked in right next to her, and Sarah McLachlan's like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm standing right next to Aretha. And she's like, Aretha, uh, can I get you a glass of champagne? So they came up to my bar. Sarah McLachlan looks up at me and recognizes me from the state on MTV, and she goes, oh my God, what are you doing here? And Aretha looks at her like, huh? And she says, oh, he's a very successful comedian. And Aretha just raises her eyebrows and goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. It's been such a joy to start in the comedy world and be able to share with you some of the people who really influenced me. But I also wanted to share with you storytellers. And that's why Catherine Burns, who is the autistic director of The Moth, was on the episode last week. And I encourage you to check it out. And this week, I got to speak with Kevin Allison, who is the creator of Risk. I want to encourage you to download, listen to all of the podcasts from Risk. You can also check out their book, but go to live shows. They they tour all over the country, and it's really worth seeing. And if you like them and want them to come to your business or, or you just want to go to them, there's the Story Studio as well, where you can learn the craft of storytelling. It is a craft. It is an art form. We got to speak about that. And for Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, devotees who come to the live shows, guess who is here? My intern, Chris Shockwave Sullivan. <laughs> We got to talk about Freestyle Love Supreme. We got to talk about Electric Company and our show, as well as their upcoming off-Broadway run and the school that they're starting. So without further ado, let's start off the show with Kevin Allison. I was born in 1970, and I was born into a devoutly Catholic family on the west side of Cincinnati, very working-class sort of neighborhood. Where did you go to high school? I went to St. Xavier High School, so a Jesuit high school. I was very lucky in that respect because the Jesuits were quite liberal and, like, taught me another side of Catholicism, basically. But when I was a kid, it was very Republican. It was a very sex-negative town. Like, the Maplethorpe trial was there. The Larry Flint trial was there. Whenever hair or Equus or something like that would come to town, it would the police would raid and throw everyone out. So it was, it was crazy. It was very sex-negative. And I knew I was gay. I knew I was physically attracted to other guys from day one. People never believe that. I have a story on Amazon right now. It's called The Two Henrys. Great plug, by the way. (laughs) It's all about how torturous it was for me to be a little child, totally aware that I was gay, knew what the words gay and fag meant by the time I was four or five, and knew that was me. And so I grew up absolutely terrified of who I was and... And just grew up very, very aware of this thing called the closet, you know? I've always thought of myself as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because there was always a part of myself that was the good boy, the good Catholic boy, who's getting good grades and following moms, you know, like that, oh, what will the neighbors think kind of uh, thing that you have to maintain in a small town. And then the Mr. Hyde, the raunchy, kinky, weird gay guy inside. So as soon as I could, I escaped from Cincinnati and came to NYU when I was 18 and then just started living this insanely (laughs) adventurous, kinky, 
anything goes kind of uh, partying lifestyle when I was when I was in college and shortly after college. And this is at NYU. Yeah. When did you join the state? Which, for those who don't know, is a sketch comedy group that was extremely popular. Yeah. Well, at around the same time that the kids in the hall were forming, but. It was a it was a time in the early '90s when there really wasn't much other than say SNL, and then eventually like Mad TV out there in terms of sketch comedy. We all formed a sketch comedy group at NYU when we were freshmen in 1988. And this group had such a dynamic energy about it. It was insanely... Competitive? Insanely competitive. In fact, I was scarred for life after the group because it was such an intense rivalry. It was 10 guys, one gal. I was the only gay guy, so all the other guys in the group had grown up being called theater fags and had to prove that they weren't. You know what I mean? Yeah, and then there's this other part of it that's painful to me in the in the subtle kind of homophobia or sexism or whatever the ism so like when I started in stand-up, I would hang out with a comic after we'd perform who got peed on by prostitutes when he didn't play Scrabble with me and that rough and tumble world at least they were honest about who they were like I wasn't waiting for him to like think of me as another human and right. like, be a feminist like everything that he felt was out there and so there was transparency to it it was much more painful to me when the person who went to a liberal arts school or a very esteemed college like mine, you know, and and wrote at The Daily Show actually was the one who was sexist. Like, yeah. And so I think that that is very confusing when you're like, I'm in the theater world, not in the military, and yet it's just as homophobic in a in a in a kind of a clever or fronting sort of way. Yeah, for sure. The roasting. We were constantly roasting one another, and I became painfully aware right away that Carrie Kenny, the one gal in the group, was really good at zipping back at people when something misogynistic was said. And I just did not have that capacity as the gay guy. So it was tough. It was tough. But it was like there's good and bad and everything. It was an amazing creative experience working with all those folks. Can you talk about your first audition, which wasn't really an audition, but the way that, oh, that you really <laughs> ensured that they that they really liked you? Well, what it was was in freshman year, I spied Joe Latrulio, who is now on Brooklyn 911. I saw him on in the hallways at NYU when I first got there, and I was like, oh, he's so cute, that I started stalking him. And I, I, I saw that he was doing a drop ad one day in the hallway, and I, I waited for that counselor. You're like, I'll take chemistry if he is. Exactly. <laughs> Only it was a, a movie class. So I got into his movie class, and I quickly realized he was heterosexual because his first movie was all about his girlfriend. So I was like, oh, shucks. But anyway... One day he said, oh, my comedy group, my brand new comedy group is doing a show tonight. Everyone should come. So I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I came to see the very first show that the state, which was originally called The New Group, did. And I was floored. The energy amongst these people was really, it was it was very unique. It felt in that room like everyone was seeing something that was already classic, like everyone was seeing Monty Python or something and already knew how great it was. So, 
I, was it as good or was it, were these people just very um, self-focused? I think it was. I think that there was a lot of genuinely funny, really creative material that very first show. But I think that more than that, it was the exuberance. Everyone like enjoying each other's talent and playing off one another. Everyone was just so inspired. So I left that show that night and I said to a couple of friends, here's the Jekyll and Hyde thing. Like I was not yet out of the closet as being gay or creative or weird or wild or there was no Mr. Hyde showing. So so my couple of NYU friends were like, here's boring, boring Kevin from Ohio, you know, the Catholic boy, yada, yada. And I said, I'm going to do anything I can to get into that comedy group. And they said, you? so i started stalking the entire group i would you know go and try and be in the same classes that they were and then one night in i think it was my sophomore year after kind of just hanging around some of them we were at this bar called the dugout which no longer exists somewhere in the east village and it was just it's like now a soul cycle. Yeah, right. It was just this little hole in the wall kind of punk rock kind of bar. And I was very drunk. Everyone was drunk. We were drinking like dollar pitchers of beer. And I went into the bathroom and noticed there was pee all over the floor, like an inch of water. And I, I, I thought, oh, what could I do that would be really crazy? So I took off all my clothes uh, except for my boots, you know, I very, very carefully took off the boots and put the boots back on, uh, you know, with that water situation. And then came out of the bathroom raising a pint of beer and sang, just kind of improvised a wailing song. I do remember the first line of it. It was, oh, standing in an inch of urine well becomes the sailing man. And then something about put your molars on my hands or something. And... I just walked around the bar completely nude like this, and the bar staff was like, okay, that's happening. You know, it's 1988 or 89, and things are still a little crazy around New York at that time. So I go back. I put my clothes back on. I come back to sit down with the group, and Carrie Kenny says to me, you're crazy. <laughs> you should hang out with us more often. <laughs> and I was like, sure enough that I was like, okay, so that was my first real audition. You know, now the group is inviting me to hang out around them. So I hung out around them for a couple more years. And what it was, was I was always the guy playing the pressing the button on the cassette recorder when it was the music cue. We used to play uh, back in black by, um, ACDC every time a, a state show would start. So I was the guy pressing the button on the little, like, boombox. And eventually I started writing sketches, and the group invited me to be in the group proper shortly before we got our job on MTV. And for people who don't know the state, there was Michael Showalter, Joe Latrulio, Ken Marino, David Wayne, Ben Grant, Tom Lennon, Carrie Kenny, Todd Hollaback. So easy to count the women. <laughs> yeah, so when the group broke up, I was pretty shattered because we had said for years, oh, we're going to be like the Rolling Stones. We're going to like be together forever. We've got our this little womb that, you know, we're in and no one can harm us because we're an 11-headed monster, you know? And then when it was all over, I was like, wait, 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 I've got to build a solo career now? How am I going to 
do that. I was just terrified about it all. I remember I was catering one night at the Grammys. I was pouring champagne at the Grammys, and Aretha Franklin started to walk in the room, and then Sarah McLachlan walked in right next to her, and Sarah McLachlan was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm standing right next to Aretha. And she's like, Aretha, uh, can I get you a glass of champagne? So they came up to my bar. Sarah McLachlan looks up at me and recognizes me from the state on MTV, and she goes, oh, my God. What are you doing here? And Aretha looks at her like, huh? And she says, oh, he's a very successful comedian. And Aretha just raises her eyebrows and goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, after one of her shows, I went up to her. And <laughs> it's so devastating. Uh, it is really devastating. <laughs> we can take a moment. For what it's worth, if it makes you feel better. So, like, after one of her shows, I went up to her and I gave her a note. And she looked at it and it had said, you do wonders for my love life. And she put it in her bag. Uh-huh. And so I was like, oh, I think I'm, I'm doing okay. Like, I think she, you know, it, it felt like a nod uh-huh. from Aretha Franklin. Uh-huh. And then her driver was like, oh, you should meet us at the party. And so I went to the after party and I walked in by myself and it was every major black politician, Jesse ja- like Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, all these people. And I turned around so quickly. <laughs> I guess I'm coming to this party. And I was like, no, you're not. No, no, you are not. You will see yourself out. <laughs> but it is devastating. Yeah. And also, we're in a peculiar profession where if you're a lawyer, my dad always says as a lawyer, uh, he can be the 10 zillionth uh, most known lawyer and still have a formidable career, still have a fulfilling career, still have a fascinating career, still have success financially. When you're in entertainment, your best friend may become a multimillionaire. Yep. (laughs) And you may be a cater waiter. Yeah. And I think that that discrepancy is really challenging. Yeah. It's super weird because so many other types of careers, there's a ladder. You know, you'd go step, 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 step. But here it's like there are many rungs missing on that ladder between starvation and hugely successful. Now, when the state ended, it's run at MTV and CBS and, you know, actors, comedians, writers go into temping or cater waitering. You went into prostitution? Oh, my one week of prostituting myself was right before the state was picked up for Sears. So other people in the state had rich parents or had the means to, like, do little jobs here and there. Whereas I was so incompetent. I was like, you know, oh, my God, my roommate, my roommate really encouraged me, who, by the way, was, like, being spanked by Kevin Spacey at the time. Can we talk about this for a second? Can we? But can we talk about this for a second? Because it was such a known secret. Yeah. Oh. Oh my God. And for yeah. some people, it was a badge of honor. Like I can remember people telling me stories of their cousin or their friend hooking up with Kevin Spacey. Yeah. In the same way that you might say, oh, guess what? My friend's on this show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you know, like, I never met him, I don't think. In your apartment. No, I don't think. But Kevin Spacey (laughs) would come to your apartment. Yes, and and spank my roommate. And then one day he says to me, you know, Kevin, you don't understand. Like, prostitution can be fun. (laughs) 
And now at that time, so this is like what, 1992, 1993, there were still hustler bars in New York City. There were still even like kink clubs and stuff like that. It's amazing how much of sexual culture is just gone from New York City now. But anyway, there was a place called Rounds on the Upper East Side. And if you walk in this part, it was incredible because it was very David Lynch. in Literally blue and red velvet everywhere and smoke and someone playing very sad, weird songs at the piano but the whole room was just people who looked like republican bankers a room full of dick cheney's and rush limbaugh's and everyone else looked like river phoenix and keanu reeves in my own private idaho like it was that split of the johns and the hustlers and that's how that bar worked and i walked in there my roommate had given me all these like little tips he called them the the seven laws of successful whoring (laughs) which apparently he had used with some success with Kevin Spacey. I walked in there and I was immediately like, oh, I'm in over my head. Like, like I, I saw these hustlers like were hustling. Like they were like literally making little signals to each other like like Paul Newman and Robert Redford in, in The Sting. And I'm like, I don't know what that little nose signal meant there. You're like, I didn't play baseball. <laughs> I don't know what hand signals are for. Yeah, exactly. I was like clueless. So yeah, so... My prostitution career lasted a week, and it was a disaster. Fortunately, the state was picked up right after that whole brouhaha. I do want to talk about you freezing and, and, and leaving entertainment. So the, the group officially broke up in 1996. And during the, the next four or five years, I was auditioning for things. I w- I'll never forget. We had an agent at William Morris who used to represent the whole group, the state, and he was kind of feeling out whether he wanted to represent us as individuals once the group broke up. I came out of the closet like I was the redhead gay in 1994 on MTV. And you were 24 years old. Yeah, exactly. So, like, everyone knew I was gay. I had come out as a part of the show. The the And he sat me down and, and he was talking about my potential. He was like, oh, yeah. I can see you in a sitcom, my friend, and you will get more pussy than you'll ever know what to do with. I was like, oh, great. Yeah, you really know me. (laughs) You're like, in fact, zero pussy is already enough for me. Thank you. (laughs) So, yeah, so, so I floundered for years, like being afraid to get up on stage, going to auditions and blowing it. I'm, I'm still not good at auditions. That's a particularly weird talent to be good at auditions. Being, being good at auditions is being a good salesperson. And in fact, brilliant actors will often speak about how they are not good auditioners. They are good actors. It's an utterly different skill. Yeah, it's so weird. And then the whole thing of developing TV shows to go to pitch. I went to Comedy Central like three different times with a cater waitering show. And of course, years later, there was an actual cater waitering show. With some of your friends from the state. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, that's another thing. You can come to any network with a brilliant idea and a brilliant character Bible, et cetera, et cetera. But if you personally don't have a lot of hype behind you at that point, no one cares. Even if you have Tonys and Emmys. Even if you have a track record. Yeah. You have to be be popular at that moment. Yeah. And that's it. (laughs) 
God. Yeah. So so it was brutal. And I started drinking very hard during that period. So I was about to turn 30 and I was seeing a therapist who thought that she was this very dark and moody Jungian. And she thought that comedy was beneath me. She thought uh, I should become the great American writer, you know, write a novel or something. So I kind of colluded with her. You know, like one thing I've learned about therapy, if you're smart and you can talk, you can get your therapist to enable anything. (laughs) It's a a really dangerous thing. I mean, I I dropped out of my doctorate in clinical psych, so you can take it with 10 pounds of salt. But but it is a very slippery slope. I I think every therapist-patient relationship is fraught with, you know, just how how well one can affect the other. But anyway, she said, yes, quit comedy, absolutely. Go back to college, start studying to become an English professor. I started taking copy editing classes and ended up working in book publishing. When you talk about your former therapist wanting you to be this, you know, great American novelist, it's so interesting that comedy is pathologized. And a lot of comedians pathologize themselves and will say it's a coping mechanism. And I do agree it is a coping mechanism, or it can be a coping mechanism. But there is a level of talent required. Oh, yeah. You know, not everyone who's traumatized turns that into comedy gold. Right, 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 right. And, you know, a personal essayist or... You know, even someone who's writing fiction is also culling from similar psychological stormy weather within themselves. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was more that probably just her tastes, you know, she was pushing me toward her own taste. You know, I started writing some personal essays while I was working with her. I wrote one called The Quitter about how many times I had quit things. And she was like, yeah, yeah, that's that's bad. That's no one's going. That's not going to get you any further in your career, putting out an essay about how many things you've quit. <laughs> well, this is, a, I mean, a fabulous segue to your career, right? Yeah. I mean, you're someone who has taken the shame, taken the rejection, taking the risks. Oh, my gosh. I created all of these wonderful, cultivated all of these stories from other people as well as your own. It was, you know, there that time after the state broke up was kind of like my time in the belly of the whale. You know, having had a creative success when I was just out of college with the state and then all of a sudden going through about 10 to 12 years of being completely at a loss for what to do. I started doing a lot of like one man shows, you know, where I was playing c- crazy kooky characters. I saw you at Luna Lounge. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, one of my... I I have a story about one of the first times I did Luna Lounge. I blanked out on stage and tried to flee the theater. And the audience thought it was an Andy Kaufman sort of routine. I would have. I I literally said to Jeff Ross, who was hosting that night, I can't do this, and started to try to run out of the theater. But everyone was sitting cross-legged. There were no chairs. It was a total fire trap, that place. So I'm climbing over people to try to get to the exit. And people are like, they had heard me say I can't do it. So they were like, no, you can do it, do it, do it, do it. And they crowd surfed me back up onto the stage. 
And I finished the monologue. I like at a certain point I was like, oh, wait, they are the dominant partner in this relationship right now. They say I can do it, so I've got to do it. I talked to an agent afterwards and he said, You were the funniest thing tonight. And I said, You don't understand. I was trying to flee the theater when at, at that point. And he said, Really? He said, Well, then you have actually lived through the actor's nightmare. You forgot what you were doing and then tried to run and you lived through it. And it's true that he was right, but I, I was not. I was still so traumatized that I was not able to like absorb that lesson that night. Yeah, but so there were many years like that. It was in 2008 that I created a show called F Up: Five Characters Who Had Effed Up Their Careers. And were they based on you? They were all based on me in one way or another. The most poignant one was a vaudeville comedian from the 20s, a guy with a very, like, Jewish accent who used to be in Wait, a... what is a Jewish accent? Well, you know, like a yiddish I I couldn't even probably do it now. But, like, a... Do you mean a New York accent? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a New York My... Yiddishy, like, uh, like, uh... Abbott and costello I don't know. I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. I'm just, I'm just messing with you because... My Jewish family, who came from Cincinnati, who had lived there since the 1850s, most definitely don't. They don't even speak like me. (laughs) And I didn't grow up in New York. So anyway, he was a vaudeville guy, and he used to be with a partner, you know, like Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello. And the partner went off to Hollywood and became a multimillionaire, and he was left behind. So that was clearly like me you know, playing like a member of the state who had been left behind. So how did Risk begin? So that night in January of 2009, I did that show F Up, these five characters who had fucked up the careers. I did it at San Francisco Cisco Sketch Fest, and it was a horrible night for it. Like, it was in a room that sat like 250 people, and there might have been 15 people in that audience. But Michael Ian Black was one of them. The mics weren't working, so I was I was screaming the whole show. It was it was it was mortifying. I was I was as overweight as I think I ever have been. I was probably like two hundred and forty five pounds at that point. So so it was just kind of a mess. And <laughs> afterwards, I said to Mike Black, "What'd you think?" You know, I, I he could tell that I was disappointed in how it had went, and he said, "Look, Kevin." I feel like the 15 other people in that audience and myself all wish that you would just drop the act, drop the mask, come out on stage and start talking about your real stuff, your real life. And I said, I feel like I've been hearing a voice in my head saying that for years, but I'm too midwestern and yet at the same time too raunchy and kinky which is a strange fit i'm too intellectual and at the same time too goofy and absurdist which is a strange fit and at the time i really felt that way about every audition i went into because i felt like oh i can't be too this or too that because you know what will hollywood casting directors make of me and so i started being not enough of any not anything you know what i mean so i said me getting up on stage and just being me unfiltered and all parts of me i said that just feels too risky and he stopped in our tracks we were walking down the street by the eureka theater and he said that's the word <laughs> if it feels risky then you're probably on to something. If you feel like you're taking a risk, then you're probably opening up 
And an audience will probably feel that and start to open up to you. Well, I finally took that idea to heart. And on the plane home to New York from San Francisco, I was like, okay. I had never seen The Moth. In fact, I've still never seen The Moth. I've never stepped foot in a moth show. Um, but I was aware How that, is it that you've never performed on The Moth? Uh, I've avoided it in order not to be influenced by it. You know what I mean? I uh, do. Yeah. As a writer, I know that very well. Yeah. So anyway, but I was aware of The Moth, and I knew that storytelling shows existed. And I knew that Margot Lightman and Julia Rossi had one at UCB called Strip Stories. It was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. it was, And those two are a lot of fun. So I knew of them, and I contacted Margot, and I said, I'd like to do your show as soon as possible. She was like, oh, my God, we have an opening this week. I said, great. Maybe I can tell the story about the first time I tried prostituting myself. And she said, that sounds amazing. Then the day of the show, I was so terrified because it felt so risky. I was like, oh, it's going to feel so gay. And yet there are parts where I sound too Midwestern and all that stuff. So I called her and I said, I think I have to pull out. It feels too risky. And she said, no pun intended. She said, that's great. I was like, what? She said, oh, my God. Because this show is about sexual stories, people really feel like they're revealing themselves. And on the day of the show, there's usually someone who calls and says, I think I have to drop out of the show because it's too risky. She's like, if I can convince that person to do it anyway, that is the story that's going to knock it out of the park that night. So she convinced me, and I did it, and I went up on stage at UCB that night, and it was fascinating because it was weird because it looked like everyone was a frat boy in the audience that night. So I walked out, and I was like, oh, God, this is the wrong audience for me. But I started telling the story about prostituting myself, going to that bar rounds when I was, you know, whatever, 23 years old, and... There were points in the story where I started to feel, oh, that sounded really gay. Oh, that sounded really Midwestern. Oh, I was too goofy there. But then I realized I just kept going past those parts and people kept leaning further into me. And then I realized I was making eye contact in a way that I usually wasn't when playing a character. And then I realized I was really feeling some sort of resonant energy with the audience. Like I was really some sort of electrical connection between me and them. And when I finished, people didn't just come up to me and say, that was funny. But people were saying stuff like, oh, that was really funny. But also it triggered this memory for me of this argument I got into with my dad when I was a sophomore in high school. You know, like when you tell true stories, you have no idea what, little psychological things you might say that will really open up memories or associations for other people that may have absolutely nothing to do with prostituting yourself or whatever it might be. If it's true, it's kind of bound to have little nuggets in it that will just open up emotions or thoughts in people like, oh, God damn, I felt that way too, but in a totally different circumstance. Well, you know, one of the things was I was like, can I really create something that'll have its own niche? And I'll never forget hearing Ira Glass on This American Life say before a story, I have to warn listeners that the following story acknowledges the existence of sex. And I was like, okay, 
I can definitely create a podcast that goes places these places don't go. We use adult language because this show is for adults. On that note, I want to share with people where they can find risk, where they can see risk. You have this fantastic Amazon series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at Amazon, if they go to Amazon.com slash this can't be happening, there's four big long news stories we've got there, including two Henry's, which is the story of me being knowing I was gay as a kid. And then I also want to just encourage people to go see Risk Live. It's been going on for over nine years, I believe. Mm, yep. And Risk True Stories, People Never Thought They'd Dare to Share, is also your book. Yeah, we have a book out from Hachette. Yep, yep, yep. Everything is at risk-show.com or all of our socials are at Risk Show. Risk gets over a million downloads a month, so be a million and one. It is worth your while. I am so grateful for your your presence in this world. I think you are such a gifted artist and writer, and this is not smoke up your ass, but I really think it's an exceptional show. So Aww, thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you for being an employee of the month. It was so great to be able to talk about what it's like to struggle in the business and thrive. I'm so happy to be able to have brought you Kevin Allison and now Chris Shockwave Sullivan. So I realized today when you were coming in to be interviewed that I think we've been working together for a decade. Yikes. And we've known each other for longer than that. Yeah. I don't know exactly. I think we met in Canada. We were like running around looking for a pool. Okay, at we, the Just for Laughs Festival. Yes, we did. We yeah. met at La- Just for Laughs. That's so funny. What a special, special thing to be at those festivals because mm. it's just you and everyone in this very contained space, mm-hmm. i.e. the Marriott. And what a great plug for the Marriott Hotel. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, the, the best thing about these international festivals is that there's an international crew that, whether it's Edinburgh or Montreal or the Melbourne Comedy Festival, you, you see certain people that you may not know from your own home city, but you see them in different parts of the world, which is kind of fun. You grew up in, in um, how do you pronounce Massachusetts? <laughs> Wait, what? How do you pronounce pronounce Massachusetts? You grew up in Massachusetts. Yes, uh, Massachusetts and Foxborough. And now that's where the, well, it has been for a long time, but where the Patriots play. Um, Go Pats. And now it's big and the Patriots are good and uh, they kick butt. And whether or not you have bad feelings about it or not, uh, they do continue to win. When I was growing up, there was no really anything to do in our hometown. Now there's a mega mall and movie theaters and you could go to New Kids on the Block concerts. Yeah, you could. And you could hear them from my house. That's how close I Is lived to the stadium. Yeah. But there wasn't much to do for kids. So, I mean, my music education and performance and organizing really starts in high school with the formal Foxborough High School music program. But also, I was in a hardcore hip hop metal band. And we would do these shows once a month at a community center. And five dollars and a and a canned good uh, donation would get you in the door, and we would um, foster this like this environment and community among high school kids, giving back, and um, in the meantime, going to these shows and mosh pitting all over the place. And it also speaks to who you are because you were an AmeriCorps volunteer before you went off to college. Yeah, yeah, city year. They call it the Urban Peace Corps. It's where you get 
placed in a, in a team that's part of a group, that's part of a core, this huge group. I don't even know how, how many people are in it now, but I went to City Year in Boston, and it's a, the length of a school year, and you get a stipend every every week, a very small amount of money, and your outfit. Great prep for uh, being in comedy and music. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, if only they paid us in drink tickets. And I worked in a community center, an elderly home, a uh, bilingual uh, low-income preschool and a elementary school. How did you choose to go into teaching when you're already you have this gift of music and it's palpable? I mean, you're in this band and you were a standout at the Fox. Well, band. I never really knew what I wanted to do, and and um, this gave me a little bit of time to kind of dodge and weave a little bit while I figured out what it is that I did want to do. So, when did you realize that you could beatbox? Was beatboxing even a thing? Well, beatboxing has been a thing since um, the 80s, you know, or since the birth of hip hop. And, I, you know, I I never was like, this is what I want to do. I think it was more like music is a thing that I enjoy and a thing that I'm good at. And there's something about being able to know what you're good at and follow that call. Without a doubt, you are an exceptional beatboxer. Uh, so, so did you have a pa- you. did you have a passion for it, even though you were probably also good, I'm guessing, at piano and, and sax um, and even percussion? Were you drawn to becoming this human drum? There's a lot surrounding the idea of what beatbox is that uh, I am drawn to, like making something out of nothing. Right now, there's no instrument in my hand, but I can... <laughs> just make sounds and anybody can anyone who's talking can just make sound like there's a baby in the room you know and it's fun and you can do comedy with it and comedy was always a passion of mine as well and hip-hop being raised with it all around me and you know i'm like a white tall skinny dude but hip-hop still was a calling to me and beastie boys was maybe my entryway into that world but there was just something about the originality and uh, you know, like I said, my hometown was, we had nothing. We had nothing, not even a YMCA, not a community center that was proper for the kids. And so there's some sort of element of we got nothing. It sounds horrible because I'm not trying to empathize where I shouldn't in terms of the plight of the black man and the black people. But hip hop is a urban art form from uh, African Americans that I'm not a part of. So it's not right to like compare my experience to that but there is something about not having certain things growing up that you can identify with well i mean hip-hop is something that has resonated across the globe and if you go to all these other countries all over the world sometimes people don't even speak english in other ways Mm. but they have memorized music Mm. you know they've memorized the lyrics and they certainly get the essence of those songs you Mm. know at minimum and and it's this contradiction and beauty in fact Mm. that it transcends i mean Mm. sports and music i think are the only two well sports music sex and food are are the things that transcend (laughs) should be a tattoo (laughs) (laughs) but you know so it is understandable to both be aware of hi i understand that this is not my individual experience yeah. and i am not trying to culturally appropriate something that that is not my experience but to yeah. also honor and be inspired by yeah there is something about the universality of of music i was brought to tahiti 
right, for a, a, a music video that I did. Sounds like a charmed life. Was this when you were starting out in AmeriCorps? No, this uh, this is jumping ahead. Okay. Um, this is through a beatboxing video that I did called Free Beats, and it was one of these videos that went viral. Um as horrible as that word is, but there was a... You got an STD from doing this video. (laughs) Exactly. Don't touch my mouse. Uh, There was a travel agent uh, who works for a Tahitian company that saw this video, and over the course of a year, he managed to get me to come to Tahiti to to work out something that would show the culture of Tahiti as more than just a honeymoon vacation. Because the people there, and the music, and the tattooing, and the dance, and, and whatnot. So... This is all just to say that I was paired with a group. They're called Takitoa, and they're from a, a small island that they don't even speak French, and I didn't speak French either. So we had to come together and put together this musical moment as part of this performance where neither I or the entire group spoke the same language. So we had music that united us, but I'm... I'm more versed in 4-4 music, uh, standard Western meter, and they uh, did not, I don't even know what it was. It was the the cues for signaling that the next thing is about to happen was not what I was used to. So for us to come together and make this happen, to speak about universality and, and about music as a common language, even that was super difficult to speak to the, the leader of this group and to be like, uh, okay, uh, me pointing at myself, like, uh, boom, 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 boom. And, uh, and he's, uh, oh, do, 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 hitting, you know, and trying to figure out what, what that means. And then when he, uh, and then, oh, that's the downbeat. No, down, he doesn't know downbeat, you know, to try to figure out the words that don't exist in between the sounds that do. So let's go back a little bit. You went to AmeriCorps, you were in college, you came directly to New York to do comedy? Uh, after AmeriCorps, yeah, it was between LA, Chicago, and New York, and and uh, New York stuck. And when did you start beatboxing? Was it in high school? Was it in college? High school. We were making music by uh, me and my me and my buddies, just like in a garage, putting together songs, like just messing around with instruments, and we would do everything from, you know, you get the two tape decks and you would record on one tape deck and then you push play on one tape deck and push record on the other and then you could have a mic input and then record something over the playing cassette into the recording of the next one and then repeat as necessary and keep layering. Like that's that that was multi-track recording then. Uh, so we put together a lot of different songs that way and beatboxing was a way to lo-fi record drums and we put together rap songs that way and uh, a good friend of mine played bass so beatbox or just traditional regular hand drums with the bass guitar and then adding words on top of that it was just like uh, distilling music down to its like bare essence three or four voices come together rather than harmony and things that are a little bit more difficult to get in get in key learning everything that goes in mm. to an art form I think can get lost in a computer age. In other ways, it can completely enhance one's experience. But I have to say that there's something really fun about live theater and comedy and music in that 
in the most unglamorous, unsexy way. You have very basic things that you must do. And it was the same thing that was done in the 1600s, assuming there was obviously mm. a huge stand-up scene. Yeah, um, the 1600s. <laughs> 1600s. But meaning that, like, you know, since these things became things. Yeah. yeah. So when you came to New York, were you performing in stand-up? Were you performing in sketch, improv? Were you doing music? Um, I knew that improv comedy was a thing to get into. Uh, it's a thing that I really wanted to do improvisation with something that I felt passionate about. I was a, a communication major in college and communication is what we're doing right now. There's a lot of rules that kind of stand within that. It takes 0.02 seconds before you feel awkward enough to say, um, certain things like that, you know? Um, and there's a fascination behind that. And when I was studying communication, it was like kind of studying improv. It was sort of like, what is, what's the stagecraft to, normal everyday life. So I knew that improvisation was something that I wanted to pursue. And music also was in my wheelhouse. I was walking down the Bowery, probably my third or fourth week in New York City. And for people who don't know, the Bowery is, you know, I don't know how long the, the, the avenue is, but it's uh, right below, right below Houston Street was where CBGB's used to be. And CBGB's gallery was right next to that. And there was a little notebook piece of paper that was stuck on the, on the front door. And it said in, in scribble ballpoint uh, font, said, uh, tonight, 8 p.m., beatboxing and the art of spoken word. And I was just walking by myself. I saw this, and it was a half an hour until showtime. And I thought, hey, let me just walk around the block and come back and come see the show. So I came to the show... And I was already dabbling in beatboxing and I already kind of knew what that was. But to see this and to know that something like this exists and then to see this show and to see the show, there was these all these people that were on stage that were varying degrees of talent and genre and style. Yes. And when you think about beatboxing, if you don't know anything, you just think like Buffy from the Fat Boys, like... <laughs> Or you think, you know, Dougie Fresh, uh, and then, but then you see these guys and they're doing like, like Masai Electro is his name. And he's like a robot voice. There's D cross and he's got this amazing scratching ability that I can't even begin to emulate. You can't even begin to scratch the surface of. And there's Yo-Yo Beats who was there in the very, very beginning of, of the hip hop, like beat beatboxing in the park and he was just like so old school it hurt and there was taylor mcfarren bobby mcfarren's son who was doing this drum and bass mixture of of uh keyboards and actually dougie fresh was there and he was there and he did his thing and he acknowledged that he was who he was but all this talent that was coming from underneath him and moving forward and the guy who put together the entire show kid lucky he had this organization called Beatboxer Entertainment, and I met him after the show, and sort of, in a way, the rest is history. He and that group exposed me to a lot that uh, I didn't have any idea existed, and we organized events, and we put together things, and I performed everywhere from the New York subway stations and um, to A-Life, uh, the sneaker company's backyard with with Bismarck Key, uh and uh, Click, what's his name? Click <laughs> did that song. <laughs> Grinding. They, they were there. Like, it was just like, 
the amount of stuff that we've done through that company, it's been years and years and years. And, and in the very beginning of that, I also met the people from Freestyle Love Supreme and we, we became together. And then that's really the rest is history. And that, so you met Freestyle Love Supreme through no, sneakers? No, uh, yeah, through sneakers, exactly. We all wear sneakers. <laughs> I met Freestyle Love Supreme through going to see a show at the People's Improv Theater. And um, I just went by myself through the recommendation of a couple different friends. I was doing a, a show on a regular basis at the Parkside Lounge on Clinton's Clinton Street and Houston Street. And it was all like improv comedy and like Aziz Ansari did his stand-up sh- sets there and oh, and um, I mean, we, whether or not we talk about him or uh, Andy Milanakis and all, all these other people were getting their beginning startup there. I like watching a male comedian squirm and not <sighs> be sure. Like, can I mention? Wait, has he done anything yet? Am I? Can I mention I that guy's even, name? I don't even know. You know, we're all everyone's. <laughs> or did he do something? I'm not sure. I just can I mention this person? I mean, I I think everyone's equal. I really do. But they they were on those stages. Yes, we're all bad people. No, oh, well, some are worse than others. The best a man can get. I know, but I, I do worry with like someone like Trump where they're like, yeah, we're all bad people. And you're like, no, 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 let's not yeah. equivocate. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean to trivialize But in, in any event, you were at Parkside Lounge. You were doing this show. Andy Milanakis, Aziz Ansari, all of these folks are, are yeah. also performing on these shows. Yeah. And I can't, I can't convey enough to anybody who's starting up and who wants to be a performer. It's so helpful to have one place that you can be checked out on a regular basis. So it's like your calling card. And doing Variety Underground was was invaluable to me. Because you can always say, Thursday night, 7 o'clock, it's free. Come, you're going to see like amazing uh, comedy or it's going to be shitty. And you're going to see me do my thing. And from doing that, I got like weekly reps in to uh, improvise soundscapes. So... I get a suggestion and I would just make up a, a soundscape where it would end in a beatboxing routine. Okay, so it was first love. This is me flying across the stage. And then I land. And then admire an, an invisible person. And then embrace it. I don't know. And then think about okay, then I'd maybe step aside from that, from me, and then become that other person and then be like also looking up at myself and like being in love. And then turn into like a beast. And then I'd eat like myself or beat myself up. And then I'd take that and then... And then turn that sort of into like a uh, like a record scratching thing, and then turn that into a beatboxing thing, and then do that, and and then the the, the crowd would applause crazily. You must have had a lot of uh, fans. Yeah. We're going to talk about our show, and I first want to talk about Freestyle of Supreme a little bit. So mm-hmm. you met these guys through Parkside Lounge or through. Initially through the People's Improv Theater, okay, but not through them. I came to see a show that was there. Yeah. And who was it who was performing? I believe at the time it was Anthony and Lynn and Bill Sherman, maybe even Chris Jackson. But they were performing, telling these stories and playing characters to an instrumental CD. And so I knew what I was doing at the time. And that was just playing characters and doing improvisational soundscapes and doing a 
foray into beatboxing and switching beats up and stuff like that. So when I saw them doing what they were doing within the genre of improv that I, I knew and respected and loved, that was the storytelling. And within the world of hip hop, that wasn't competitive or macho or downgrading to other people on stage. It just had such a good feeling. And it, and it really is what it sounds like. Freestyle, love, supreme. And then to see them doing this to a instrumental track. And I said, I, I can do what that is. And I could stop on a dime and I can interact with them and I can be a character somehow and slow down and speed up. And so I, after the show, I, I introduced myself to Anthony and then we exchanged contacts. And then from there, we got together and spoke with Tommy Kale, who was directing, and, and we did some rehearsals in the basement of the drama bookshop. Which is actually closing, um, but they're going to reopen in a new space because Tommy Kale and Lin-Manuel Miranda purchased yeah, full circle. the drama bookshop. And I remember performing there in that basement. Yeah. Freestyle Love Supreme is this incredibly smart freestyle improv mm-hmm. hip-hop show. Mm-hmm. How did you guys get involved with Sesame Street and and by way of that electric company, which you were a star of? Uh, we were doing our run at Ars Nova Theater on 54th Street, who continue to support us. And we had this run, much like we have coming up now. Uh, we have a run coming up in February. So while we were doing that run, this is what I believe to be the range of events that led up to it. Karen Fowler was executive producing the Electra Company. The, the For PBS, for, for P- public broadcasting. Yeah, for Sesame Workshop. And I didn't know much about how all this worked until being a part of this. That, you know, Sesame Workshop produces their own programs and then PBS buys or or licenses that program. And PBS isn't just one monster corporation. There's, you know, W a public radio and public TV. Like it's a, this it's like one giant spider with a whole bunch of little spiders all attached to it. It's such a perfect way to describe it. I I've written for Sesame Workshop and I remember when Electric Company was getting off the ground and it was so exciting because I was so riveted as a kid mm. by the original series. Yeah. How did you get cast? I mean, you starred in this show and you I mean, I have friends kids who grew up watching you. Yeah. So Karen saw our show and knew that in this new version of the electric company, it needed to have an updated cultural reference and hip hop was one of those things. So her witnessing Freestyle Love Supreme and like how I had said before, like the good parts of it, the the love, the posit- positivity, the building up, the speaking of truth through storytelling and not uh, not hiding behind something else that's not real. She she saw the light in us and we did like a tester where it was me and Bill and Lynn and Anthony and Chris I believe and Arthur. We all did this like testing thing where we just filmed us doing different songs with the kids um, on the playground and they edited that and put that all together into something. And then a year later, there was a proof of concept that we filmed where things got sort of shaken around and a couple members of our groups got sort of put into different responsibilities and other people were casted into different parts that were the cast. And we shot that. Reggie Watts was a part of it also then, and he and I did some things together. 
And then part of Electric Company. Yeah, yeah. And um, Reggie Watts is still tangentially part of the Electric Company, except he's been animated. So if you watch Electric Company, and there's a there's a character that is Reggie, but just not him in the flesh. And then a year after that proof of concept came the pilot, and the pilot was more of a first episode kind of thing. Normally a pilot would be tested and this was actually the first episode, but like wink, wink, also the pilot. So we did that. And then the, and then we got the funding and through grants and whatnot. And, and the way after that, the, it all sort of shook out where I was of the crew. I was the, the last one that was sort of left on cast as sort of like electric company friend i'm not a technically electric company member but i was like the guy who works in the in the cafe and um would accompany other people and their songs and whatnot and everybody else sort of shook out to other places and bill was the music director and now he's music director of sesame street and utkarsh had a guesting role and anthony guested and helped produce and we all sort of shook out into different places Electric Company was a fantastic show. Literacy mm-hmm. was its mission. And in fact, kids can still get it. And I bet more kids get it from computers, from going online. Yeah, it's on HBO Family now. So you can stream it. And it's in more HD than you ever could imagine. So <laughs> <laughs> That is a really hard thing as a performer when you're like, I, I appreciate the honesty, except uh, with my wrinkles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Freestyle Love Supreme has this sold-out run, which is I really want to encourage people to go try to get in. There's going to be a lottery, much like with mm, Hamilton. With Today Ticks. They're doing a lottery system off of that, yeah. And I would like to, if anyone can't use their ticket and they already have one, I am available as a seat warmer. <laughs> I will happily take that seat off your hands. But I wanted to ask about the school that you're starting. It seems really exciting. Yeah. Uh, Freestyle Love Supreme Academy will be kind of the next... Next incarnation of Freestyle Love Supreme paying forward. This is our way to teach others to sort of come and learn the skill sets that we've built upon and perfected and perform them in the wake of this run and of everything going forward. We have an eight-week class that we've perfected through different beta class testing and surveys and curriculum development and it's all fancy and professional with powerpoint and uh yeah it's and we're really excited about it kevin allison i had on the show who was the artistic director Mm. of the pit actually Mm -hmm. where you met freestyle of supreme was was through that theater we spoke about having friends in the business colleagues who go on and just make astronomical amounts of money and have tons of resources due to the fact that they've succeeded and thrived in a way that that opened all these doors for them mm. and then have friends who are scraping by. Mm. And I was just curious, I mean, with Freestyle Love Supreme, you have Lin-Manuel Miranda, Tommy Kale, Bill Sherman, as you mentioned, James Monroe Eigelhart, who have achieved success in the way that we socially describe success. Mm. What is that like being part of this group where some people have been able to achieve everything they wanted and perhaps, I imagine, beyond what they ever dreamed, and then other performers who are as talented not necessarily being able to capitalize on their talent? Yeah. The thing I think about first is that movie, uh, Don't Think Twice. Yes. yes. Just that, if anybody has not, not seen that movie, it's just, it's such a, uh, it's something that 
many people have experienced. And this is the, this, that question pertains itself to that movie in a big way. What happens when you're in a group, whether it's a music group, a band, a large band, a small band, a duo, an improv group, and one of those people become successful and famous and just the things that you have to deal with in that. The interesting part of um, your question and framing it this way is most of that run uh, of all these people becoming successful has been uh, not on the backs of, but in tandem with In the Heights and Hamilton. Absolutely. Um, and Bill Sherman obviously is part of that as well, but you know, and he's Sesame Street music director. So that's, that kind of diverges from it, but it's still, all, still part of the same leaf. But the thing that encompasses all of this is that everybody's attitude is so um, loving and inclusive and that there's no part of somebody who made it and they escaped. I feel that so much. I feel that joy and that love. And like when I see people I started out with, like I'm so excited to see them. And I don't know if that's just my personal maturity Mm. or the fact that there is something really built in those relationships. It's the people who are – these people are – Quality people. I mean, yeah. I, it was just They're Lynn, classy. They're was, classy guys. It was Lynn's birthday the other day. And um, over a text with him a, a week prior, I just you know said, happy early birthday. I'll meet you at Barcade. Um, and Barcade is a place in Brooklyn and, and Jersey, and, and they're expanding. It's a great, great bar that has upright video games. And two years ago, Lynn had a birthday party at Barcade, and... I was there, and so was his friends from high school and college. Yes. There was like one or two people I didn't recognize. And this is him in the midst of his rocket shipping to success. Right. So, you know, he just like had a table or two and gave everybody free tokens, and we just played video games and drank beer and, and ate pizza. And every time he has an event and he has this, a screening, there's just like all the old school people are still there. And, you know, he's like A-plus list celebrity right now, but... He doesn't go to this place where all of a sudden we fall off rank. That's that's Lynn, but that's also Chris and Bill and and Tommy. It's it's everybody who's quote unquote achieved success. And yes, and this is socially prescribed success, and I think they're all aware of it as well. Yeah, and grateful. Yes, yes. I am grateful to you, and I wanted to just talk about our coming together a little bit because I mm-hmm. I love doing Employee of the Month show with you. And I know that you do another show with Victor Vernardo where you are instrumental, pun intended, <laughs> um, to enabling these shows to, to exist in many ways and also at the center of it. I, w- I was just curious, what's your experience of, of Employee of the Month? And on the same note, what is your experience of doing your show with Victor Vernardo? How are they different and what did the two feed you? Uh, the show I do with Victor is called Battleicious, and it's a comedy rap battle. So we book four different comedians, and it's a rap battle. And it's in much in the similar way that Freestyle Love Supreme is not about being negative. It's not praising the negativity or saying how fat someone's mom is. It's more. It doesn't so, punch down. Yes, it punches up. And they're comedians, so it's about making the joke that's going to make the audience experience the most joy and laughter. And if somebody's mean, it um, commonly will get them booze. The similarity between the two, Employee of the Month and Battleicious, is not much except for that stroke of joy. Um, It's only good things. That's really, I mean, that's the only thing that I would really 
participate in. We are the band and you are the interview. And for a talk show, those are the two pieces that you get. And we just try our best to be the best bread to hold the, the middle in. And in the middle, you're amazing. And we kind of just chime in and say things whenever we can. But it's about us just trying to accompany you and and the tightrope walking that you have to do when you're interviewing another guest, which is so hard. I don't know if you remember that this game in high school or college where you light as a feather, stiff as a board, and so a group stands around you and you and you the trust fall. Yeah, the trust fall. Mm. And I just want to say how excited I am and grateful that it's one of the handful of areas in my life where I feel like I trust you guys enough that I can fall. Mm. Oh, thank you. That's nice. I think you're an exceptional performer, and I'm so I'm so lucky to be able to perform with you. So thank you, and thank you for being an employee of the month. Thank you, Katie. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus. I want to encourage you, if you are in Salt Lake City, if you are in Park City, please do come check out Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus live at Sundance. It's free. It's going to be a fabulous show. I'm very, very thrilled about that one. And you can listen to the podcast. It's coming to you weekly. I want to thank Dana Bialik for putting this together. And I want to thank all of you. And I really want to thank Kevin Allison and, of course, Chris Shockwave-Sullivan. I'm Katie Lazarus. Thanks for tuning in to Employee of the Month.